the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, sands of stories in an interplanetary hourglass. These are the days of Terra Nova. August mass markets can't turn off what turns you on. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Son of the Black Sword. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. We have part one of a big two-part roundtable interview featuring ten writers from the great new-themed anthology Terra Nova. This is a collection of stories all set in author Tom Crapman's Carrera universe. These are prequel stories to Crapman's science fiction Carrera novels, and they are really varied, interesting, and even provocative and moving. We talk with Tom Crapman, Vivian Raper, Casey Ezel, Mike Massa, Robert E. Hampson, Mona Lisa Foster, Jason Watson, Christopher L. Smith, and Lawrence Raley, all about their excellent contributions to the book. And Tom Crapman comments on the overall genesis and structure behind this uh, classic series of military science fiction. It's a fascinating discussion with some really top-notch folks, so stay tuned for that. And we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's great high fantasy novel, Son of the Black Sword. Now here's the news. The August trade paperbacks are at booksellers everywhere. There's good stuff to be had, so go and have it. First up is Uncharted by Kevin J. Anderson and Sarah A. Hoyt. It's 1803, a new 1803, when a lecture by the venerated wizard Benjamin Franklin is disrupted by the attack of a winged fire-breathing beast. Franklin commissions a young Meriwether Lewis and his partner William Clark to investigate a growing evil that lurks in the uncharted arcane territories west of the Mississippi. Also out in August is Tide of Battle by Michael Z. Williamson. This is collected short fiction and really cool provocative little essays from multiple bestseller Michael Z. Williamson with Cutting satire on classic poetry and modern movies and no-hold-barred lambast of several beloved firearms in their fan clubs, Williamson concludes with more of his inappropriate cocktail recipes, frequently both delicious and outrageously snarky, commemorating celebrities, events, and cultural memes. Plus, of course, there's plenty of great Michael Z. Williamson fiction, often set in his Freehold universe. And finally now out in mass market is Worlds 2 by Eric Flint, a new collection of short fiction from Eric Flint. This includes stories set in the Ring of Fire alternate history series, Paul Anderson's Operation Chaos Universe, a story in the popular Rats, Bats, and Vats series, and a long novella set in David Weber's best-selling Honor Harrington Universe. All that plus more, including a new introduction to all the stories by Eric Flint. Worlds 2 by Eric Flint. Tide of Battle by Michael Z. Williamson and Uncharted by Kevin J. Anderson and Sarah A. Hoyt are now available at booksellers everywhere. This is part one of a two-part interview with the authors and editor of Terra Nova, The Wars of Liberation. Part two will be available next time on the podcast. 
want to welcome Tom Crapman, Chris Smith, Justin Watson, Casey Ezell, Lawrence Raley, Mike Matta, Mona Lisa Foster, Rob Hampson, uh, and Vivian, Vivian Raper to the podcast. Hello, everyone. Hello. Hello. Hi, Hello. We have quite a, quite a, quite a group here. Um, what we're talking about is uh, out now at booksellers everywhere is um, Terra Nova, The Wars of Liberation, which is edited by Tom Crapman. Um, I want to give Tom's uh, bio a little bit because the, the point of the book is that it is based and set in Tom's Carrera universe. Um, Tom Crapman is a defector from the People's Republic of Massachusetts. He enlisted the Army in 1974 uh, when he was very young. Uh, served tours and is enlisted um, in Panama, and then he got a scholarship, went to Boston College, got a degree, a commission. He went back to Panama um, with the 24th Infantry Division and with Recruiting Command. Uh, got out, I think you became a lawyer at that time in like 92, you went to law school. Uh, right. Went back in the Army after 9-11, um, and... Uh, I guess, were you reserved, Tom? I don't know. Um, yeah, well, I was a regular commission until I punched out to go to law school when I changed it over to reserve. I see. Uh, took part in Iraq um, as, and then uh, did a lot of other things. We could go through them. Uh, you, you worked at the U.N., but I believe the rule of... Um, now, that was... Uh, director rule of law for the... <laughs> U.S. Army Peacekeeping yeah, the, Stability <laughs> Operation Institute. Um, right. I worked with the never <laughs> damn UN, but I was never with. I knew people there. there we had a, a an 06 there, a colonel, who was actually had been assigned to the UN for a while, and his pay had still not recovered from that. Um, <laughs> but uh, I see. It's, it's not really no one's fault. It's just a weirdness to the U.N. Tom's the author of the um, the Carrera books, among others, um, and the Countdown series, and some books with John Ringo, um, a bunch of books. The Desert Call Peace series, we might call them, um, beginning with, um, well, we have Caliphate, uh, I call them the Carrera series when I'm thinking about them. Um, and the latest one is The Pillar of Fire by Night, which was out last November. And now we have out at Booksellers Everywhere this um, wonderful collection of stories by people writing in that universe called Terra Nova. Um, Tom, can you tell us a little bit about, um, correct anything that I said wrong about your background, if you want, and um, tell us a little bit about um, uh, about the conception and creation and origin of Terra Nova. Okay, well, it, it's an anthology written somewhat in the form of the novel. By what you mean, there are interludes to tie the different chapters uh, into a whole, probably about as cohesive as you can expect, given that it's set all over a, a different world with entirely different characters for each chapter. And the chapters, they tend to run from short stories, one of them actually uh, pretty short, to pretty long novellas. There are, there are two fairly long novellas in there. And most of them hover in, in the middle. They're, they're good length um, shorts. The novellas themselves are subdivided into chapters. And, and it covers, it's a prequel, really. It, it covers the period in the Carreraverse from the first failed attempt at colonizing the planet, which failed largely to political correctness, multi, multicultural sensitivity, and the idiot transnational bureaucrats, bureaucrats who demand that, um, to the UN's first serious response to a growing rebellion. 
It, it matters to the UN, by the way, because the planet is what they're using to dump people who object to, to the UN ruling the world. And so that gives them more power here. If there's trouble there, it's harder for the planet, it's harder for them to, uh, to dump um, difficult characters from Earth, uh, which interferes with their program. When I first started it, I, I intended to assemble a pretty unique group of writers, uh, and, and that's what we've got. Just, you know, blurbing down the list, we've got an Oxford grad, PhD, STEM check, hi, gee, a couple of bricks, as a matter of fact. We've got military and Air Force Academy grads, uh, a Harvard Law grad, who's not here, uh, a Navy SEAL, an honest-to-God nuclear brain scientist, hi, Rob, uh, a former Roman Catholic priest, with combat service in both the South African Army and Navy, an expat Romanian hot vampire chick who can really write well, um, <laughs> someone who actually knows about the arcane art of moving holy and sacred beer from a cooler somewhere out of sight to where it can be drunk. It's <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's the best description I've ever heard of my job. <laughs> right. And all those people can write. Uh, I mean, a couple of most of them I recruited directly, because the worst way to do an anthology like this is just to throw out casting calls, because you will be snowed under with tripe. Um, and a couple of uh, a couple of people who came in were actually recruited by the people that I recruited. Uh, we had a few people who dropped out due to work commitments. I, I hope we'll get them back for a second time, because one of the, for a second volume, because one of them is a retired German Navy, uh, and the other one's a retired British Army Sergeant Major. And I just love to read the fiction that they did. Um, when why did I do it? Well, I wanted to read some stories in the career verse that I didn't write. Like a correction, I wanted to read some good stories in the career verse that I didn't write. Rereading Terra Nova today, um, I was the editor on the book before, and uh, I, I'm just struck again by the quality and the the, the concentration of the, the writing. It, it's clear that all these writers really enjoyed this universe, exploring in it, that, um, that they found things in it that um, that they'd probably been thinking about for a while because they liked the liked the books. Um, this, this really felt like um, uh, something that was not thrown together by writers who are, are doing you a favor, but writers who just loved it so much that they would have maybe even done it, you know, for, for free, although they did not. Right. No, they didn't. <laughs> well, Tom, um, maybe we can come back and talk more about your uh, conception of putting together the thing. Let's, uh, a couple, uh, because we got some pretty uh, high-powered and, and people with jobs uh, <laughs> that are about protecting the country in some cases. Uh, maybe we should get to a couple of stories and talk about them. Um, let's, let's talk about uh, Vivian and Casey's story first. Um, maybe let's do talk about Vivian first because it will give a good introduction to what is going on in the rest of the book. Because this is about right, the trip. The first story in the out. collection. This is not even set on uh, Terra Nova, but it is set on the ship on the way to Terra Nova. So, and it's a cocktail, right, Vivian? It was. It, it is. It's. Um, it's set on. It's. It, there's an interlude in a desert full piece, which is all about um, telling you what happens to the Cheng Ho, and it's um, sort of told in little segments throughout the book. And it comes in kind of, um, it's never told from anyone's point of view. It's always told from a slightly omniscient point of view. And it has this little, almost little anecdote. Um, so some of the stories recounted by um, 
someone who buys mission because Shanghai doesn't. And um, I'm I'm British and I I live in the south of London, so I ended up writing a, a British um, South London cop who ends up um, as a bit of a fish out of water on the Shanghai um, as a security officer and ends up investigating all of the various events that are recounted in the interlude. Um, with a sort of uh, what my mum reading it described as a bit of a suspended. Wow. Well, it, it feels a little bit like uh, a lot of the social issues that are that are troubling England right now um, are going on here. For instance, we have um, we have some uh, marriage between or some relationships between people that are of, of very different cultures that the families are not very happy about, right? And this sets off a, a, a sort of gang war between the cultures. Where what I found very interesting uh-huh. was uh, in the interlude was uh, um, Tom's description of uh, the mission was that it, it was people who were chosen to be very tolerant and to get on very well. And I, I mean, and I thought, well, how does that fall apart? And um, what I sort of knew about the former Yugoslavia was that people who had been often sometimes, you know, serving in the police force or, or being very close to each other, suddenly as a result of the, the, the risk that, that came up, you know, the political and geopolitical forces, they just started completely turning on each other. And I sort of thought, how does that happen? And I think the starting point for me was I watched a five-hour BBC documentary on the former Yugoslavia, um, just thinking mm-hmm. about all the things that happened. Mm-hmm. And um, I actually even interviewed somebody um, who I know for a completely different context, who was actually um, who was actually around at the time, and just asking sort of a lot of questions about what happened and how people felt about each other and what their experiences were as well. So that's kind of where my starting point was, I think. Oh, that you know that makes perfect sense now that you bring it up. I mean, it does seem like what if you bottled up you uh, the former Yugoslavia and put it in a in a ship. Um, tell us a little bit about your main character, who is a really a winning fellow, who um, who just wants to, to do the right thing, and he tries to be a good cop, and nobody will let him. Yeah, I think it was what, what sort of inspired me a little bit is that um, is that I that where I sort of always is, is probably my actual experience of being in the UK, I think, these things. And I'm not a particularly tribal person. And when I came to write it, I thought, how can I write this? How can I approach this? Because it's not something I would ever feel or do. And when I realized that was what was interesting about it, so I created this guy who was in a sense thought like that. He, he didn't really, couldn't really almost understand the forces that were surrounding him. And in a sense, that was his feeling. The thing that, that sets everybody off seems to be the brewing of alcohol, which probably um, it's maybe a lesson Chris should take since it makes people kill each other. Um, and the, it, how did you land upon that as your drug of choice here? Is it just because it was, you weren't supposed to? It, it's actually because I was thinking about how, one of the inspirations I also had was, was the effects of being in space, because one of the things I've always wanted to write is a story where people kill each other in space. Because I read this whole there's always things where go mad and, and start murdering each other. And I wanted to, I was, I was looking into all the kind of real life analogies for that. And I found um, there was in Antarctica, there was actually a couple of, there was a, a what was actually uh, suspected, potentially rumored to be a murder 
Um, and the person was actually, they died in, in the same way as, um, as, as, as happens. So it has a real life inspiration. You can actually look it up. I don't remember off the top of my head the name of the, the chap who, who died, but it was in a, it obviously a research base. Um, and there is a lot of information on the web and, and people write a lot about the psychological impacts of being in a very isolated environment. Well, it's a, it's a cool procedural and sociological uh, short story. Um, Tom, do you have anything else to uh, to to add or to ask um, Vivian? The uh, we had some fun talking about you know different things like you're asked about alcohol and you know should it have been alcohol because it was originally going to be something else and alcohol is kind of work for so you know it's pretty easy to work yeah. with. You ask a lot of questions so. <laughs> well, obviously <laughs> some deep diving research. I said I have a day job as a journalist, so that's my job asking people questions, fortunately. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that, uh, that comes across. Somebody that knows the uh, knows the streets. So, uh, well, let's move on to Casey now, um, and let's talk about her story, Desertion. Um, this is a very different sort of story. This is a very uh, sort of intimate um uh, interior story, and it's about a helicopter pilot. In case you are a helicopter pilot, um, I am. among many other things, um, tell us a little bit about the set it up. What this story is about, and um, and and tell us about um, Captain Lily Campbell. So um, when Tom uh, first approached me um, and invited me to be a part of this of this anthology, he specifically said that he wanted a story involving helicopter combat. Um, and uh, the, the specific helicopter that, that I fly that I'm qualified on is the UH-1N Huey, um, which has not been used in combat by the United States um, in a number of years. Uh, the, most, the most famous setting, combat setting for the Huey um, was, of course, uh, the conflict in Vietnam. Um, several years ago, and it's and the Huey is still sort of the iconic Vietnam helicopter, right? I mean, you know, you you, you see the the images of um, the you know multi ship formations flying in over the beaches, you know, blasting right at the boundary. Those are Hueys, right? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> so, um, so you know, you tell me write a helicopter combat story, um, and. Uh, and you know, kind of the first thing that, that came to mind was, was all right. Well, let me, uh, you know, let, let let me think about a Vietnam story that that I'm very interested in. Um, and in looking at at Tom's career verse, one of the things that I found most compelling about the story, you know, that he tells is that you have in this, you know, uh, this repeating theme of characters in who are put in a in an impossible situation who are have to make a choice between doing something terrible and doing something worse or allowing something worse to happen. And that reminded me of a, um, a really dark incident, actually, um, connected with the My Lai Massacre. Um, it's the story of uh, uh, Warrant Officer Hugh Thompson, Jr., who was a Huey pilot who attempted to intervene um, you know, while, the, while the My Lai Massacre was going on. Um, and uh, um, he later was you know, receive the Distinguished Flying Cross for, for his actions that day, but um, just just really bad stuff, you know, up to and including confronting American soldiers. And, and, and yeah, it's just, it's, it's not a, it's a depressing story, um, but it's interesting, and, and I think it's one of those stories that is, 
you know, it's important for us to, to know about um, and, and to not forget. Um, so I was sort of inspired by his story, and I wanted to create a character who was put in that same kind of impossible situation. Um, and so um, I came up with, uh, with uh, Captain Lily Campbell. Um, and then the other thing that I wanted to play with with her is, so she's, her background is that she's um, of Filipina extraction. Um, the reason I chose that is um, Tom had mentioned at one point that, that you know, one of the settler groups uh, that settled Terra Nova were Filipino, and I lived in the Philippines as, as a um, as a kid for a couple of years. So I always sort of have a uh, um, a, a bit of a affection and connection to Philippine culture. Um, and um, the the Filipino women that I've known very well are all really really tough women who have really really big hearts. And so I was trying to I was trying to represent that with Lily, and I gave her um, she has this 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 impossible situation both internally and then also externally um, when she and her unit are, are ordered to go and do an operation um, that midway through the operation she realizes is, is something that she is, um, that is immoral and, and that she, you know, doesn't want to be a part of. And so that's where the title of the, of the story comes from because she, um, she breaks ranks and takes her helicopter and um, and uh, attempts to uh, attempts to rescue some of the some of the kids that um, that were the victims of of this particular operation. Um, which her, she's a she's a U.S. helicopter pilot, but she's on detachment to this corrupt UN government Correct. that's trying to control the Correct. the world. Correct. Yes, and 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 so. You know, so part of the conflict for her there is is who are these people that I'm being forced to work with? What are they doing? You know, why why are we doing these things? Because she's, you know, she, she's um, it, there's so many layers of distance between her and you know whatever goals that they're that they're trying to accomplish that these goals don't make sense to her and they're not they're not in line with with her values and what she you know what she signed up to do. And then the other internal piece to it is is the piece about the children, right? So. Um, her her own internal conflict is that she desperately wants to have children and has been unable to do so. And um, I know that um, you know from from uh, friends and family members who've struggled with infertility. I know that that's a a huge drain on a person's emotional resources, and um, and that it's it's really a very painful sort of wounded existence when you know you you so badly want to to be able to have a child and you just can't. Um, and, um, and so to put someone who has, is that sort of walking wounded psyche into a situation where it's like, where she has to choose between, um, you know, following her orders and saving these children. Um, I, I wanted to, I wanted to explore that again, impossible choice type situation. What is, um, it that she has to physically do to um, to get out of there. Um, that, uh, I mean, you mean tell us a little with, bit about flying helicopter? a helicopter in such situations. Yeah, that was kind of fun for me just to to, to yeah, so, read somebody that technically knew what they were talking about. <laughs> so um, while uh, you know, while modern helicopters do have instrumentation and the ability to fly in bad weather. We really don't like to do it um, because it's 
um, the, the helicopter is an inherently more unstable platform than a fixed-wing aircraft. And so it's just, it's just a lot harder to fly when you can't see what's going on outside the aircraft. Now, now we can do it, but it's just it's harder. And it's, it's, it's very dangerous to do sure. something like that close to the ground, which is where helicopters tomorrow. typically operate. Hey, What's that? Go ahead and mention tomorrow. Go ahead and mention tomorrow. Right. So, uh, um, so I, I've talked about this on, on previous podcasts, but um, uh, my best friend uh, from pilot training was actually killed in a in a sort of similar situation. Um, they she wasn't flying Huey, but they were in a um, in a uh, HH sixty Pavehawk, and they went. Uh, they this was in Afghanistan. They were called out on a, a medevac mission. Uh, for a couple of Afghan children who had been injured, and they the weather was pretty bad, um, bad enough that they had to aerial refuel in the mountains low level. So flying low in the mountains means you're flying close to said mountains, and um, with with bad visibility and uh, it's just and you know dark nights it, and it, even with night vision, it's just it's scary. It's it's not a great situation. You don't have a lot of options. Things really have to go right, and you know. Just like with anything, you know, no plan survives first contact with the enemy, right? Well, sometimes the enemy is the dark night, the weather, you know, the bad winds, whatever. Um, so um, in, in Tammy's case, uh, her helicopter crashed um, uh, into the mountain during uh, low-level aerial refueling in bad weather, and she and, and all of her crew were killed. Uh, that happened in 2003. So um, riding Lily's escape with a helicopter full of children um, I have her flying through the mountains in bad weather, kind of picking her way along, trying to stay out of the clouds so that she can at least see the mountain in front of her. Um, and it's, it's pretty hair-raising. Uh, at least it was for me to write. I, I hope it is for the audience. I hope I was able to communicate the, the sort of visceral fear that, that has been uh, you know, trained into me uh, based on, on my 20 years flying helicopters. Oh, yeah, it came across real well. Um, the, okay, uh, <laughs> thank you for that validation, Tony. The <laughs> other thing is <laughs> you, you ratchet everything up by giving her a co-pilot who's a Mormon with like 15 million kids, right? That's yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and again, Which I thought you know, was that, very that, unfair of you. <laughs> well, but, you know, again, in, in talking to, um, you know, to the people that I care about who have struggled with infertility, um, one of the things that, that I hear repeatedly is that, you know, when you're, when you're struggling to have a child and you can't have a child, it looks like everyone around you is pregnant. Everyone around you has babies. Everyone around you has this thing that you want so badly that you ache for um, that is just out of reach and there's no real reason why and nobody can answer you. And, you know, it's, it's just a, it's a, you know, it's it's a it's a painful situation, and, and you know, people are always having kids, right? So it's it's not something that goes away. Mm. Uh, Tom, is there anything else? Uh... It's, it's kind of interesting. I wish she hadn't had to drop off, but B is also um, she's a girl who has a hard time getting pregnant. She's managed to, and she's in her second pregnancy now, but it's really really tough for her. Uh, one of these days, I'm going to have to talk to her about how she took Lele. Lele's story. Oh, yeah. I'd be interested to do that, too. Yeah. Well, I'm sure we'll uh, all meet at a con at some point or another in the next 10 years. (laughs) 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 Well, um, Um, anything else about the story you wanted to to say, Casey, um, before we let you go to 
fly dignitaries between point A and B. And where are you in Japan <laughs> now? Is that true? Yeah, I'm in Japan now. Um, uh, no, I just uh, I you know I'm I'm incredibly grateful to Tom for the opportunity. Um, it's I'm in I'm in awe of the of the talent that he's managed to assemble for this project because this is you know it's it's just a really 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 great collection of stories, real hard hitting stories, which is you know something that I sort of respond to. Um, and uh, this I think this is probably one of the darkest stories that I've ever written. Um, and I, um, you know, in, <laughs> I have a reputation in, you know, when writing in like the freehold universe and stuff of, of killing everyone um, <laughs> in my story, I have a pretty high body count, but, but for, you know, for me, I think the tone of this story is probably one of the darkest that I've ever written. And it's one of my favorites kind of for that reason. Um, so thanks again, Tom. I appreciate it. And thanks Tony for having me on. I'm sorry. I have to leave. Right. It's very affecting. Very affecting. Did you hear that, Casey? Don't fly in twenty mountains. I thank you, Tom. I I, I will take that uh, take that to heart. And uh, you know, to all my other friends on the line, it is great to hear your voice. I can't wait to see you again in a couple of years. Bye, <laughs> so. Casey. Bye bye. So uh, well, let's uh, move on. To, let's let's talk to uh, to Mike about uh, Mike Massa about the Raiders, which is um, kind of a dirty dozen. Uh, take on uh, on a career reverse story um and and it's also very canadian in this way um can you tell us a little bit about this mike sure well the the setup was that tom asked me to write a pov character who was on the on the side of the un which is definitely the antagonist in this universe but to do so sympathetically and so i'm like huh what would what would make for a sympathetic UN character who's operating against presumably the the good guys? And so I came up with this Dirty Dozen concept where there there's a group of um, ethnic Quebecois that are fighting against what we would think of as the other half of Canada, which is spread you know split ethnically Anglo and, and uh, Franco. And uh, as has been alluded to before, and is known by the folks who've read the universe. Um, the UN treats its uh, early investments in Terra Nova as a as sort of a satrapy. They're 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 being extractive. They're looking for ways not only to get rid of the big worst troublemakers, but to extract value to make the operation pay for itself. And so the notion here, in addition to having the sympathetic UN characters, how do you set up a mission that uses old technology, contemporary technology, and then the cutting edge stuff the UN has access to? And, and all the while, keep your uh, your um, sympathetic point of view character actually sympathetic. So I basically had to create an even worse bad guy for the kind of bad guy to uh, to be the anti-hero against. Again, and the motivation is if they succeed on this almost forlorn hope, then their uh, their criminal records, their chance at a more normal life comes available. I know it's a typical sort of extortion way to. Uh, to get your soldiers to perform, and it can work sometimes or not. It depends. So um, that's not what they did to you when you were a SEAL, was it? They didn't like threaten <laughs> no. to imprison you. If... <laughs> no. Yeah. So what's the, the what headlines? It could seem uh, that way, but no. Yeah. Uh, what's the? So they have to take this this bait this this guy who's the son of uh, the Quebecois. Uh, 
want to be prime minister has been kidnapped is and, and these well, guys so kidnap are is, a, is a sort of a strong them. word. It looks like our heroes have stumbled into, uh, without having been briefed, stumbled into a situation where what's supposed to, what is supposed to be a hostage rescue is actually something more. And not only they're being asked to rid their lives to rescue someone's spoiled brat of a kid, and to do so literally from the lion's den, but it turns out that the the bad guys are actually um, trying to turn a buck, like you do. And so the, the format of the story is a back and forth between the debrief that happens right after the mission. And so you learn right from the very start, from the very first scene, that the point of view character survives the mission because he's, you know, he's there being debriefed. And at each stage, he has to, has to explain what happened and, you know, during the insert and during the infill and the first half of, of action, uh, actions at the objective area and how that goes horribly awry. So you go to plan B and that goes horribly awry. So you go to plan C. And there is no plan C, so what do you improvise? And then how do, you, how do you get out with as many of your folks as you can, and hopefully with the objective as well? There's a lot of um, little details that, that you put in here that just seem so authentic, and they must be, um, that they get across the feel, the sight, the smell of, of an operation. I mean, and when you even have him at the very beginning, you say smells like, what, aviation fuel, and uh, cordite and something else. Um, it just—it it was it painted a, a beautiful picture of somebody that was just had just been through hell. Um, he gets blown up three times, right? Yeah, three times a charm. And I and I drew on personal experience uh, both for how do you how you feel and how you smell at the end of an op, especially if you've been fly, if you've been around Jester helicopters and all their exhaust, uh, and that 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 sweat is a that combination of. Uh, of sort of a released tension and uh, spilled, <laughs> if you dip tobacco, you spill a bit on yourself, and a little bit of MoGas from the bladder in the boat, and the JP5 exhaust impregnated, and the smell of the demo that went off, or the black fuse that was, that was smoking in your hand, all those things that build up in your clothes, and then you have to sit somewhere afterwards in a small room and recount coherently what you did. Almost right afterwards, is a very familiar sort of debriefed pattern for uh, for most folks that have been in that situation. But the uh, w- when you get a near miss, if something rattles your cage, it can be really hard to keep thinking through the mission and have it three time have it happen three times would be really really challenging. And so this gentleman, uh, our protagonist, who makes it to the end, um, has to endure that and still keep making make good decisions even as the the very land, the dirt under his feet, the fabric of the mission is changing, even as he's getting injured. So yeah, it's a uh, it's a toughie. How do they train you to do that? I mean, just well, you personally. I don't know and, that you can. The way that he. I I don't know that you can you can train someone to be ready for that uh, in its entirety. Either you know they get you as close to it as you can. And then away you go. And I think prom, probably Tom can speak to that uh, more coherently than I can because I have a very narrow view uh, from a, a special operations community whose selection process has the, has the uh, I guess you could say, the, the wherewithal and the organizational appetite to accept 90% attrition in a given training class. And if you're trying to mass produce an army, and it's measured in, in combat brigade strength, not platoon strength, you really can't afford that. And yet the, the Army turns out people that can do the same thing and, and withstand the same pressures. So, I don't know, maybe Tom could speak to that. 
that's uh, Tom, you have that's really getting on into training? The, whole, the whole lecture on on how to train. And I'll just recommend people go read the go read the essay, Training for War. Yes, got most of it, we published that. <laughs> yes, we did. published that event. In fact, we have it out of e-books. So, yeah, yeah well, we're into Tom's books, really. Yeah, well, one so, of the things um, that uh, I, I think I mentioned it to Mike, um, but there's a great quote from the French commander in Indochina not long before Dien Bien Phu, where he um, he went to a Say and he tried he was trying to recruit Vietnamese soldiers for the uh, anti-communist war effort, and he said, you know, basically make a decision, you know, be one thing or the other. There are good men on the other side fighting well in a bad cause. Join us or join them, but stop sitting on your asses. Um, and, and that was really behind what I wanted, what I asked Mike to do, is I, I want someone who can say that kind of thing in a story. Yeah. It's, a, it's also a technically um, really brilliant little story because the payoff is, is it hangs fire until um, we get back to the the close of the framing story, which is really it's really fun in that way. It's a good little yeah. story. Well, thank you very much. Yeah. Uh, it was it was fun to write, and I got some good editorial direction from Tom, uh, especially since we were seeking to keep things uh, at, at tidy lengths. I have the I have the typical relatively new writer's bad habit of going on a bit too much, so that was really good to be able to to get the good direction and keep things tight. Cool, cool. It works really well. Yes. Let's talk to Rob then. I believe he's next in the collection. Uh, Dr. Robert E. Hampson, uh, and, and this is a story about doctors. And I notice, uh, uh, I noticed that that you have the bad, evil medical school be Duke. Um, is there some reason you did that? <laughs> well, the fact that. Uh, Duke and Wake Forest are arch rivals has nothing to do with it, I'm sure. Uh, so, but, uh, but actually, the, the, the reason for choosing Duke is that the Duke Brazil Initiative is an actual real uh, organization, a real entity that is ongoing right now. In fact, I know the professor who was instrumental in getting it started. So I wanted something... I, I have to start off by saying that when Tom invited me into the anthology, he said, do you want me to assign you something or do you want to come up with something on your own? And I liked the challenge inherent in Tom saying, here's what I want you to write about and then actually come up with the, uh, the story. And so he had the idea of the UN forces creating a disease that would drive the insurgents to come out of hiding in order to be vaccinated. And that actually led, okay, so that means that we're probably going to be based in Balboa. Let's come up with a situation that we can take from the future or from the present day moving forward that would set up this doctor. So uh, the Duke Medical School and the Duke uh, Brazil Initiative was a way to set up getting the character of Anthony Nunez uh, to be the point of view character starting on Earth and then moving to Terra Nova. 
Well, tell us about Anthony um, and how did he end up on Terranova? Because that's sort of um, it, it, it's, it becomes part of the bad guy's motivation for creating this um, this, this nasty virus. Right. So, so Anthony is a struggling third year student, fourth year student, um, who, in order to get spending money, basically has agreed. <laughs> to assist a much richer uh, student, but less academically inclined, in doing class assignments. He's technically a tutor, but what he's really been done, really been hired to do, is to write reports for the student. And so he's trying to work on a report, but the a different student who was actually acting as a scribe, writing down all the notes, has horrible handwriting, as doctors do. And so the uh, so Anthony asks his friend for assistance in translating the written notes. And it turns out that the friend was playing a joke on our uh, very rich, very well-connected uh, Lucas Carvalho. And Carvalho does not like the joke that is played on him. And it was never intended, not on Anthony's part. Anthony was not the one who was setting him up uh, to be the, uh, the target of the joke. But Anthony is the one who becomes the target of Carvalho, uh, who will hold a grudge with a vengeance for a very long time. And... So the joke is is actually uh, integral to the story, uh, and it comes from a uh, a line used in medical school: if it looks like a duck and quacks like a duck and walks like a duck, it's not lupus. And so the uh, with uh, lots of feedback and interaction with Tom, we came up with the idea of duck fever, and that many years later. Uh, in order to get away from this very powerful individual, very well-connected individual holding a grudge, uh, Anthony uh, ends up on Terra Nova, and uh, he's now uh, going by a different name, George Noonan, and he is in Balboa, and he's treating uh, the women and children for the most part. And he's a good doctor, and he's very well-liked. And he comes face-to-face with a disease that is very odd, very strange. And when he starts to look at what it is, he recognizes if it looks like a duck and walks like a duck and quacks like a duck because the victims of the disease are bent over and they have to duck walk. Uh, They have... Uh, um, muscle contraction in the face that gives them duck lips, and they have muscle contraction in the uh, throat, which causes their voice to quack. And George, Anthony, now George, recognizes this as this was the joke that we used to talk about in medical school. This can't be real, or if not real, it can't be natural. And so it is, it becomes his job to find a cure because, among other things, he realizes that 
this was created, and it was created in order to get the insurgents to come out of hiding to get the vaccination, because vaccination is the only treatment available until George does his thing and tries to find and figure out the uh, vaccine on his own. Yeah, he kind of, uh, and the the person in the story that's most affected is his uh, possible future brother-in-law, who's who's one of the insurgents. But the the thing that the story is is about is this this guy who is really he's a great doctor, got a lot of feeling, uh, works his butt off, barely makes time to uh, have a relationship. But and when he does, he's totally committed. But he's also politically naive. He's just a He's an innocent who is trapped on a world where innocence is um, is not left alone, right? Um, and it's the story of his coming out of that innocence, would you say? Yes, it is. And what I really liked writing in it was the idea that as far as he was concerned at the beginning, the insurgents were rebels. They were bad guys. Until he finds that his girlfriends, his fiance's brother, uh, has come down with this. And and he comes down with it in part because he was injured on a raid and he's thinking, you know, oh no, my my future wife's brother is a terrorist until he is told otherwise. Um at uh at the cost of a face slap uh <laughs> by his uh, future wife. And it's it, it's an eye-opening moment for him, and he continues to have eye-opening moments until we get to a question that Tom actually asked me in the course of writing this. He says, okay, what's to prevent them from doing this again? What's to prevent the UN from doing this again? And that then is the rest of the story, is what's to prevent them from trying it again at another point. And uh, George has to decide how far he's willing to go, because these are his people. He's, he's getting married. This is his family. This is his wife's family. And these are the people that he is treating and defending. And he, at that moment, becomes a Balboan. Yeah, yeah, definitely. There's also um, some, uh, we we start hearing about some of the interesting fauna, uh, flora in Tom's world. Um, you have uh, the possibility of uh, progressive vine poisoning, which, uh, which <laughs> yes, I, we have I the ultraberries, the progressive vines, and the antennae. And transy trans trees. Those moon and trees, That's right. Also, so um, well, it's uh, Tom. Is there anything else we need to say about uh, no hypocritical oath? Um, it, it's. I mean, I think Rob pretty much encapsulated. It's a great story about a, a doctor um, who's reluctantly, very reluctantly, coming to to change his mind about uh, where his loyalty lies. Rob didn't didn't phrase that particular editorial set of comments. He, I'd actually, you know, I asked him the question, and he gave me a technical answer. 
what, what's to prevent them from doing this again? Said, no, 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 you're writing a, a story. <laughs> we don't want a technical answer. We want an operational answer. And he came up with one. Yeah. Because essentially so this is a weapon of mass destruction, right? Yeah, yeah. What did you say, Rob? It's a... Well, I said that, and then that conversation ended up in the story because I looked at what we said, and oh, my, yes, this is perfect. Let's move on to, I think, um, a really uh, heart, uh, a really great story that's at the heart of the book, uh, which is Mona Lisa Foster's Alona's Gift. Um, I was really, uh, this comes to mind, um, sort of a farewell to arms or... Uh, or for whom the bell tolls, particularly for me, Mona Lisa. Um, was there any thought of that? Um, anyway, tell us about Mitzi um, and her character as we're introduced to her. Um, so I, I, those two that you mentioned, um, I would have to say no. Uh, when when Tom invited me into this anthology, uh, he told he uh, he asked me what I wanted to write, and I I wanted to write Mitzi's story because. Uh, it has a, uh, we all know how it ends. So in, in that sense, it was perfect for me because I like romances and we all know how romances end and they end up with a happily ever after. And um, when I was uh, bouncing ideas off of Tom, he told me to go listen to Abba's Fernando until I got sick of it to get in the mood. <laughs> so um, somehow, <laughs> somehow that ended up um, with, um, with this story about Mitzi, who is uh, Belisario Carrera's daughter. She's the reason that they are on Terra Nova. It's her, basically her fault. So I, I try to get into her head. What would it be like to grow up uh, being Belisario's daughter? Uh, what would it be like to grow up being responsible for having your entire family sentenced to transportation? And um, what would it be like to be responsible for them losing everything that they had and then having to make this fresh start, and then her father turns into this um, war chieftain, and all of these people are dying, and uh, you know they're they're dying for lack of bullets. So um, one of the reasons I picked the title uh, Bologna is one is a war goddess, and this is a gift from a war goddess, and it brings them victory. So that's kind of how that story came about. I believe she's one of the yeah moons, yeah Bologna right? wasn't she yeah yeah. Yeah, she was. Yeah. The Bologna is one of the moons of Terranova. So anyway, Mitzi is, um, is you do this wonderful job of presenting her as this hard, tough-as-nails exterior that, that all the characters in the story are seeing, and yet she's very fragile inside, um, and she has to go off sometimes and deal with the... Uh, because she's been hurt really bad in the past, um, right? Tell us a little bit about her makeup, if you would. Well, I, I think that's right on. She's somebody who, um, like I said, has a lot of guilt, has, has daddy issues in a way, has had a very tough life, and she's always had to put on this very strong exterior because that's what's expected of her, and you do what's expected, especially in a situation where you are uh, expected to survive. It's not like, um, you know, if she's not living with first world problems. She is living in this survival mode and has been for a very long time. So um, it's it's very easy to just uh, put on this cloak of like armor almost where you seem impenetrable and um, but you're not because inside you are still who you are and it's and you are somebody that's been hurt. I mean she uh, she was um, 
uh, heard by this UN guy who was um, who ended up uh, who Belisario ended up killing, and that's why they they got sent to the transportation. And one of the things I wanted to do with her character arc was for her to be able to kind of break through her own shell and allow herself to um, to show a gentler side, uh, a side that somebody could love. I wanted her to let somebody in uh, through all of that armor that she'd been wearing all this time, and that person is Juan, and um, he's the one that helps um, them get the arms that they need to win this struggle. So he is part of Bologna's gift. It's, it's not just the ammunition and the guns. It's somebody from Mitzi to love and somebody to love her back. That's part of um, that whole idea of uh, having this gift uh, being given to her and then her developing as a character to accept something with grace. Because I think people that yeah. have been hurt and who've been living that kind of hard life have a hard time with grace. And she has to she has to earn it in the story because it's a quest story of sorts because so these two guys show up with a bunch of with a bunch of guns and ammunition to to and it is exactly what her dad needs but her dad's off in the jungle um uh, and they have to get this to him um and the jungle itself is just a a nasty place on Balboa I mean on uh, on Terra Nova the uh, tell us a little bit about the moon bats because she's scared of these things, and she has a right to be. Um, so, um, again, this is Tom's creation, and, and um, you just gave him such a lovely paradise there, Tom, to live in. I mean, I just, I think everybody on Balboa would actually hate you for giving them these kind of uh, creatures. Um, so there's right. just these giant flying things that will, um, you know, that will bite you and you'll die from the wound. So I guess uh, they're venomous and they're big, and they're ugly. And by the way, a group of them is called a campus. And um, there's this interesting little... Campus um, of Moonbats. A campus of Moonbats. Um, that's actually, I have to give credit to that word, too. That's actually my husband's idea. And, um, you know, they, they come out at night, and if they, if they bite you, you, you die. They're like Komodo dragons. Their mouths are septic. It's the infection that gets you, not poison. So, but they're nasty, you know, just like the, 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 trans, the progressive vines and yeah, all the other lovely things that Tom put on the planet. Bullshit berries and the progressive vines and the campus of – that was I thought that was hilarious, by the way. Your husband is to be commended for that collective now. Um, I will pass that the, on. I agree. What happens that, that sets up the – the second part of the story, and, 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 and that's probably, we don't want to tell too much past that, but the fact is that um, a moon bat, there's two guys, uh, the moon bat attacks, or several attack one of them, and um, Juan, who who likes Mitzi before maybe she likes him, or, or um, tries to deal with it, but he's so inexperienced, and Mitzi knows immediately he's made a mistake. What does he do, and how does this lead to uh, just almost near disaster? Well, he he shoots at the moon bat, and he ends up um, shooting his friend in, as well. And even though they end up killing the moon bat, his friend now has a has a wound in his upper arm, and they don't have any supplies. And um, you know they they do the best that they can to patch him up, and uh, he. You know, he puts on a brave face and, you know, we're going to soldier on to our destination. And, um, well, he develops an infection. And Mitzi and Juan have a problem now because they, they, they're they not going to be able to um, get the arms to her father 
and save his life. So they, they kind of concoct a third option um, that will hopefully allow them to do both. Yeah, which is a very cool raid um, with a diversion on a uh, on a place they might can get some drugs. Um, it, and Mitzi finally gets to maybe get a little revenge for some of the stuff that's going on with her, right? Mitzi gets some closure for some of the past issues that she's been living for with for all of these years. And it involves a knife and punching a guy. So all very good therapy. Yeah. And the guy she gets the closure on also gets some terminal closure. So we could probably say something like that. It's a Tom, is there anything else about uh, Bologna's gift that we should? I, mean, I, I think it really—it's uh, in the middle of the book, and it's a—it's a really moving uh, little romantic tale that is also uh, very gripping because of Mitzi's character. Well, two things: one, the girl on the cover is Mitzi. If anybody didn't catch that, and um, Mitzi is actually my sister-in-law, and she's a lot like the, the Mitzi who's described in the in both the career main series and this uh she's a pretty neat girl we tried to get a picture of her for kurt but it didn't quite work <laughs> yeah that's some cover that kurt did kurt miller our, our uh <laughs> the career of universe artists That was part one of a two-part interview with the authors and editor of Terra Nova, The Wars of Liberation. Part two will be available next time on the podcast. Now we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa, book one in the saga of the Forgotten Warrior. After the War of the Gods, the demons were cast out and fell to the world. Mankind was nearly eradicated by the seemingly unstoppable beasts. Until the gods sent the great hero Ram Rowan to save them, he united the tribes, gave them magic, and drove the demons into the sea. But as centuries passed, the descendants of the great hero grew in number and power. They became tyrannical and cruel, and their religion nothing but an excuse for greed. The people rose up, and the surviving royalty and their priests were made castless, condemned to live as untouchables. The age of law had begun. Ashok Vidal has been chosen by a powerful ancient weapon to be its bearer. He is a protector, a member of an ancient military order of roving law enforcers. No one is more merciless in rooting out those who secretly practice the old ways as Ashok. But Ashok isn't who he thinks he is. And when he finds himself on the wrong side of the law, the consequences lead to rebellion, war, and perhaps transformation. Now here is the latest entry in Larry Correa's Son of the Black Sword. Chapter 34 Ashok lay on his blanket, looking up at the clear night sky and its millions of stars. The others thought he was asleep, but in truth... He was eavesdropping on Kita and Thera's whispered conversation. The two of them were on the far side of the wagon, out of range of normal hearing, but with the heart of the mountain aiding him, could still make out their words over the crack and pop of their fire. Are you certain? Yes, Kita hissed. 
in the heat of the moment, Ashok mentioned having orders. I'm surprised you didn't catch that. I was a little preoccupied trying to pick out the right jugs. It isn't like we label our contraband, and some of those detonate the second they catch fire. Blowing myself to pieces might have still made a great distraction for you two, but for me, that plan had a few drawbacks. What kind of orders? There was a long pause. Ashok assumed Keita was shrugging or giving a perplexed look. I'll tell you what his orders probably are, Thera stated. Destroy the rebellion. Bring back the prophet's head in a sack. Don't look at me like that, Keeper. You know I'm right. But the voice of the forgotten was clear. Clear? Thera raised her voice in anger, then quickly lowered it so that Ashok wouldn't hear. Not that it mattered, though she had no way of knowing that. There's nothing clear about that thing. Assuming the voice isn't just the result of some crazed fit from an adult mind. Thera, please, he pleaded. I've heard it. If you could hear it yourself, you'd know too. Don't let the words of the doubters shake your faith. So let's say you're right, and it is the forgotten taking hold and speaking. It didn't come out and call Ashok by name. If you're wrong, you're endangering everything you've accomplished in Akashan. You've created something great. True or not, the people listen to you, and they're changing the world. Are you really going to lead a monster right through the front door to threaten everyone you love? I will keep you safe, Keita vowed. For some reason, despite knowing it was correct to maintain every tactical advantage, listening in on this particular conversation made Ashok feel dishonest. He tracked the path of the smaller moon, Upagraha. The small, bright dot moved leisurely along its regular nightly trajectory as Ashok waited through the awkward silence. Thera sighed. He's not taking orders from the forgotten Keita, but he's certainly taking them from someone. I'm not saying we have to kill him or anything like that, but the next city we reach, it would be really easy to just disappear. Ashok would never find us. Then we can go where the Inquisition can't catch us. No more of their castes, no more of their law. You've carved out a home, why not go back? How long will that home survive, Thera? The law will never rest until it has control of everything. I can't abide even a taste of freedom. We've drawn the capital's ire, and they'll find our people eventually. The voice can guide our spirits, but it falls to us to protect our flesh and blood. We need a general to lead our rebellion, or we will fail. Finding him is my responsibility. Mine. You're blinded by your own stubborn belief. If you're not going to listen to me, why should I even bother being here? Maybe I'll just sneak off at the next town and leave you and the protector to continue on your merry journey. Then when he slaughters all of you like pigs, it won't be on my head. You can't. The rebellion needs you. I need you. You're too important. You may doubt the gods, Thera, but they believe in you. If we're both so special, then maybe I should wait until you aren't paying attention, then set another one of those fortress bombs on fire and roll it over to Ashok's bedroll. Then we'll see which one of us your gods believe in more. Before his fall, he wouldn't have cared what they thought of him. For some reason, now they actually mattered. 
Plus, Ashok didn't like the idea of being blasted into a cloud of bloody chunks in his sleep. It was time to deal with this foolishness. He got up, walked around the wagon, and approached the campfire. The two conspirators were sitting next to each other, wrapped in wool blankets to stay warm. Thera saw him coming. You're awake! Keita couldn't help but look guilty. We were just... Talking, yes. Ashok sat on another fallen log and studied his companions. About my orders. They shared an uneasy glance. Thera shifted beneath the blanket, probably to put a hand on one of her many concealed knives. Oh? I like your bomb idea. Pragmatic, but unnecessary. Ashok forced himself to smile, but from their reaction, that actually made things worse. So he stopped. You are correct. I was given orders as punishment for my crimes, but I am forbidden from ever speaking of them. Convenient, Thera said. I keep my vows. On the barge, I made an agreement with the Keeper, and I am just as bound by that agreement as any that came before. You have my word that I intend no harm to you, your compatriots, or your profit. I will not expose you, nor will I hinder your goals. That's an easy thing to say, Thera muttered. Ashok met her gaze and locked onto her eyes. Do you doubt my word? She didn't look away. There was strength there. Very few people could stare down a protector, but she watched him for a long time, surprisingly defiant. Finally, she admitted, No, I don't. Good. It made him wonder just what kind of life Thera had lived to be able to stand up to him like that. She was angry, but she'd found power in it. He continued looking at her until the wind shifted and the smoke stung his eyes. If you don't believe me, then use that knife you have in your hand and drive it into my heart now. I won't stop you. Keita cleared his throat. The keeper had almost been forgotten in the exchange. Ashok, may I ask? No. What do you intend to do when you meet the prophet? Thera demanded. Offer my allegiance. If accepted, I will serve to the best of my abilities for the rest of my days. And if denied? Then I will leave my ancestor blade on the shore and wade into hell. For your sake, I hope the gods are less suspicious than I am. I'm certain that an inspired judgment will be made once we reach Akashan. Keita interjected. Thera nodded slowly. I'm sure it will. Beneath the blanket, Ashok could tell that Thera let go of her knife. Ashok felt like they'd come to an understanding. That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa. And that's it for the podcast, thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Chudkowitz. And a Mobius treadmill for them is like their marathon training a trifle one-sided, plus thanks, praise, and plaudits to the authors and editor of Terra Nova. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars. Stars.